All right, welcome back to the Buffalo Bread Podcast. JJ here with Dan, as always. And we are post-Super Bowl. I think that for everyone's benefit, we can stop talking about the season that wasn't as a Bills, as a Bills Mafia and move on to the Hopium season, the offseason, the Madden GM time, when we can just bury ourselves and how the, the heck the Bills are going to win their first championship next year because this year is no longer in consideration. And we all suffered through watching another Patrick Mahomes and Travis Swift win yet another ring and make it two in a row and prime themselves for that, you know, amazing NFL record, which is three consecutive Super Bowl victories, which we hope the Bills will spoil epically for them next offseason. Dan, what did you think of the big game and why did every single person of our generation immediately get down as soon as those, you know, first few beats of yeah hit during the halftime show? Um, because that is the music of our generation. That is the, the anthem. Mu- that That is literally the anthem. I think any party, any gas station, movie theater playing house music, anywhere I went, played car yeah, with its windows open? Was legit the yeah. soundtrack to my life. I could walk out of a Walmart, walk into a fast track, and it would pick up seamlessly on what cor- chorus <laughs> part was yeah was on bo- both locations <laughs> right absolute synchrony right absolutely um how did you, you know the super bowl i have lo- i have lots of thoughts on the games mostly misery because we just got rid of brady and now we are sandwiched in between him and mahomes we have the second best quarterback maybe of this generation but it doesn't matter because the first quarterback of best quarterback of this generation is in the afc and we can't seem to get over that hump all that stuff aside There was a lot of, to me, it was surprising debate about who Bills fans were going to root for in this game. And I get that the Chiefs and Kelsey in particular are more likable than the Patriots ever were. But the answer has to be you are rooting for the 49ers. You cannot root for the people that are literally keeping you away from the one thing you want to see before you die, which is the Bills winning a Super Bowl. I don't care that they're in the AFC. Because like that whole co- root for the people and teams in your conference thing, I, I never abided by that. We just got done with 20 years of domination from the Patriots. And I don't know how as a Bills fan, I was then expected because they this team and the Chiefs is slightly more likable to root for them to continue to dominate us, right? So to me, the answer was clear, root for the 49ers. But JJ, did you have a different take on that? Because I was surprised hearing a lot of Bills fans being like, well, I'm going to root for the Chiefs because they're in the AFC. I, I didn't I didn't like that take. Where were you at? Um, Like, I don't I, I agree with you completely. I've never understood the whole like AFC unity. Like, what? No, what? Why? Like, when, who can, when did that become yeah, a thing? How does rooting for your conference help your team? Like, it's I guess like if you're going to go big brain on it, it's the fact that the Chiefs then have one worse spot in the every round of the draft. Like, I. Yes, but really, it's like I've I've never got that. It doesn't feel to me like there's any sort of, you know, um, unity by conference. That's silly. Um, I was I was straight up and down, you know, 49ers and for two reasons. One, I like I like the Brock Purdy narrative and the whole thought of, you know, somebody, you know, the the underdog hero mentality stuff. That's cool. Um, Also, very much like Christian McCaffrey and his whole his whole jam. I wanted to see him get a ring having gone to the show and not gotten one before. Um, and then it, the third piece of that was the revenge angle, 
having, you know, the 49ers lose to the Chiefs a few years ago and then come back and win one on them. That was those were all the things that I wanted out of that game. Um, and the, the thing that I, I took away from that game was the Chiefs proved yet again. And I think by way of coaching that they are the class of the entire league. Um, they have the talent, of course, but the the point I wanted to make with coaching is the refs weren't calling freaking anything in that game. It was a strong let the players play game. And I don't think, you know, for all the conspiracy theorists and, and nonsense out there about the league being scripted or whatnot, I don't buy, buy any of that um, who will point at GIFs and, and images of, you know, the Chiefs players holding Bosa on every snap or this Chris, and that. Chris Jones was getting mugged every time yeah, he went up against the 49ers online, please. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Is like it was it was a matter of and the reason I point to coaching, it was a matter of the Chiefs were better at playing dirty knowing it wouldn't be called than the Niners were. But neither both team had that advantage if they just would have taken taken advantage of it. Um the Niners just did a poor job and played too clean. Cause like the refs weren't calling anything. The Chiefs' DBs were holding on every route. They were stifling Ayuk at the line. They were stifling um, all of the outside receivers. They were, you know, jamming up Christian McCaffrey kind of dirty if he was out on a, on a pattern. So it, it's just that the Chiefs played dirtier knowing they weren't going to get called than the Niners did. The Niners should have played dirtier is honestly what I think. Yeah, and that and that's what the Chiefs do in the playoffs. We got a taste of it in that AFC Championship game at the end of the 2020 season, so technically in the year of 2021. We got a taste of it with the quote-unquote sticky coverage that those Kansas City DBs like to play against uh, our wide receivers. Like The Chiefs know because they are so well-coached and so well-prepped and so experienced at this time of the year, they know that refs swallow their whistles in the playoffs and the postseason, the refs do not want to be the story. They do not want to blow a call or make a call that is going to ultimately take attention away from the outcome of the game. They don't want to be accused of it. They don't want the league doesn't want to deal with it. So refs notoriously swallow their whistles in the postseason. The Chiefs know that, and they will absolutely push the limits every down of what they can get away with in order to game that advantage. And that is not cheating. That is doing what you need to do to win, working the margins in every way so that you can continue the success of that franchise has had. So no, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Yes, the Chiefs were holding every defensive player and every offensive player they could on the 49ers, and the 49ers were doing the same thing. They just did not, be, did not do enough execution-wise, particularly on offense, to win. And I mean, listen, man, shout out to Spags. Is he the GOAT? Of defensive coordinators, it, like is he the defensive this, coordinator? Goat? This was his fourth, 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 the most among any assistant coach yeah. in the history of the NFL. Yeah, I mean, he does. Until Spags, it was Belichick, right, with the Giants against the Bills, and that's a role. And like you know, at various yeah. times throughout history, finding ways to just completely shut down an opponent who you know take away their best thing. And now I think it's Spags. I think that he has supplanted Belichick in terms of being a coordinator who has put his thumbprint on a championship caliber team roster and actual championships. And it, it was amazing to watch him work with real talent. And that's no, no shade. Like, I've, I have not thought much of these Chiefs defenses no, in past it, years. It's but... been clear on the spot that we, we thought they were complete garbage for most of the past three years. And, and he always got the most out of those units. Mm -hmm. He had... 
an amazing toolkit in McDuffie and Sneed and Jones to work with this season. And he, he just, he knows how to disrupt quarterbacks, right? I get Lou uh, Anarumo from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Like, I get he gets a lot of credit for doing those things. Spags has done it with lesser talent on a more consistent basis. Even those Giants teams that he, that he uh, coached to beat the Tom Brady-led New England Patriots against, he had an elite pass rush on those teams, had nothing on the back end by way of coverage, right? So, I mean, he was, oh, he has made it a habit of working with a lesser, lesser palette of colors as an artist, if you will, on a lot of occasions. And Anarumo has not done that. He's done it with an ideal setup with like a Jesse Bates and a Von Bell and all that other kind of stuff. But last season, when they clearly were missing some of those pieces for Cincinnati, the defense wasn't nearly as productive as it had been. Now, he's still a really good defensive coordinator and he knows how to disrupt QBs. But to me, Spags is heads and tails above um, Anarumo, who I believe is probably number two on most people's list for best defensive coordinator working in the league right now. You know, and Fangio's probably in there somewhere as well. But it's well, Spags. And, it's Spags. Yeah, it's Spags. It's Spags all the way. And just like one note on Anarumo and the difference between them, Spagnolo will take literally any talent and turn them into an effective, yes. effective, you know, opposing defense. Um, Anarumo... And it's not just the, the talent basis. Anarumo is a schemer where Spagnolo is a caller, right? Like Spags knows what to call in the exact moment. And he has like kind of a preternatural sense of knowing where somebody's going to attack him and dialing up the perfect, you know, play to counter that. Um, and then also to adjust his counters so that just when the offense thinks they have him solved, they're you know they're getting the free rusher off the off the outside edge because they didn't account for it because he anticipated what they were going to do to counter him and he countered the counter. That is where Spags excels and Anarumo doesn't necessarily have that level of complexity because Anarumo's jam is again he has a better you know talent pool to draw from and then his other thing is he just has his scheme complexity is what makes his defenses so competitive. It's about the drop eight, rush three. It's about the like really exotic twist, you know, and really the thing with Anarumo is, and you can see this by the way that the Bengals have been played by the Browns, by um, the 49ers, or not the 49ers, the Steelers, by, I'm just thinking old, old teams, um, the Steelers, the Ravens, right? Like there are teams within that division that play him very tough. And it's because they, if you study enough, you can do well, you can put up 20 plus points on Anarumo. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and this is an overly simplistic take on Anarumo, who I believe is a really good, I believe he's oh, a really good. I think coach, he's good. Right. Yeah. But like my take is like, he watched Fangio invent the drop seven rush four and was like, I will do you one better, sir. We'll I will drop. rush three and drop eight, <laughs> right? Ha ha. Meanwhile, Spags, Spags is like, guess what? I'm going to drop seven and rush seven. That's right. <laughs> People are like, what? Wait, 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 how does that work? Right? I know. And he's like, just watch. Yeah, and somehow just he watch. does it. Yeah. He does so, it with 11 players. Yep. Some Somehow with 11 players, he makes you think that there are 14 on the field. Yes. Yeah. That's the beauty of Spags. All right, man. Um. So yeah, another Chiefs victory. Another off-season cycle of of hope can begin for the Buffalo Bills. It, JJ, we set this up on the last pod. Some of the free agent priorities that we we think the Bills are going to need to focus on, and really, it's about some veteran floor stabilizers. They're not going to be able to afford, nor are there a lot of 
ceiling raisers in free agency that the Bills can really can really bring onto the squad. So it's all about the draft. So this is where we're going to begin some of our draft coverage. What I'd like to do is, if if you are uh, amenable to this, my my good friend, um, is I want to talk about areas of need that we want to see the Bills hit in the draft. We don't need to dig too deep yet into players that we want to bring on board. I think we can mention a couple of names for the listeners at home to dig into here in draft season. But um, we're going to save that for a later date where we, re- we really go all out with some of our solo mock drafts and unpack why we think some of the players we want to bring to the squad are good. So right now, man, I just want to do some table setting for the draft. I love this time of year. Um, I have started to get into to draft guide study and film study on a lot of these prospects. And I think, I think there is a lot, a lot of possibility and potential based on where the Bills are drafting and how many picks they have to really address some needs. So onto those needs, JJ, what do you think are going to be the top priorities, particularly in rounds one through three, that you think the Bills should focus on? This is all kind of dependent, as we always say, nothing, you know, everything's dependent on how free agents, the draft is dependent on free agency. Free agency is dependent on who you resign of your own. Like the, you know, so with all that said, though, I think in the top three rounds, I'll say the top four picks the Bills make wherever they are. And that includes if they trade down from one and have two twos and uh, two threes, you know, like the top four players in this draft that the Bills pick need to be some combination of one defensive lineman, one safety, and two wide receivers. And that's kind of where I'm at. And that's, you know, and and for me, it's like you have to value stack those. So if you're picking a DT or a defensive end in the first round, you need two and three to be wide receiver, and then you get a safety in the fourth or fifth, right? If you are picking a wide receiver in the first round, you need to go DT, then safety, or safety, then DT, and two and three. And fourth can be a backup, you know, double dip at wide receiver. But for me, it's it's some combo of two wide receivers, a safety, and a defensive tackle. And I'm afraid, knowing Brandon Bean, Sean McDermott's preferences, that the top four picks are going to be two defensive ends, a defensive tackle, and a safety. And they're going to be like, we're going to bargain shop in the fifth round for a, a stud outside wide receiver, and they're never going to find him. Um, I have had similar nightmares uh, yes. as well. I I love your take. I want to I want to up the spiciness of said take. And I think I am zagging as I tend to do from where a lot of I think Bills commentators are at. I think people look at this draft class and they see that wide receiver is really deep and defensive tackle at the one tech is not as deep as it as it w- they would like it to be. And as a result. People are deferring to the second round, a wide receiver pick. We've heard names like Tyler Franklin, Adame Mitchell out of Texas, um, as possible gets in the second round so that the Bills can draft their one tech who will ultimately take their place next to Ed Oliver in the starting rotation here. I am of the firm belief that the Buffalo Bills need to go wide receiver so long as one of their their guys is there. And by all accounts, this is a deep class with lots of round one graded wide receiver talent. They need to go wide receiver one. And it's for this simplistic reason. I have no numbers. I have no metrics by which I am basing this take on. 
we were not a defensive tackle away from beating the Chiefs in the divisional round. We were not a safety away from beating that team. We were 20-yard plays, explosive offensive plays down the field that our current personnel package and makeup could not deliver. When we needed those plays, we could not get those plays. We are a wide receiver, a true blue chip wide receiver away from being able to contend with the Chiefs. Everybody is chasing the Chiefs. The Chiefs need wide receiver help. They also need tackle help and defensive line help as well, depending on what happens with Chris Jones this season. I guarantee you they're going to draft a wide receiver because they understand, unlike the Bills in certain draft years, what their fastball is. They're going to draft a wide receiver one, and then they're going to make all those other positions of need work. The Bills need to stop chasing the Chiefs and start thinking like that unit if they want to beat them. So to me, wide receiver one has to be the pick. Dude, you're not you're not actually going to get an argument from from me against that. I will say this: the only way I would counter is that is that they should not. They can't. I think it would be a critical error, one that could cost them the ability to compete with the Chiefs if they reach for a wide receiver who's not the guaranteed stud they're looking for. And I know it's it's always a crapshoot in the draft. There's no guarantees, but if they if it gets to pick twenty eight. And uh, Marvin Harrison Jr. is, of course, gone. Roman Dunze, like they're going to be top 10 picks probably. Malik Neighbors or Brian Thomas Jr. from LSU are both studs. They're gone. Keon Coleman is gone or Xavier Worthy, whoever you got, however you got them ranked. And they kind of dip down into Xavier Leggetti. You know, like that's what I'm, that's what I'm worried about is them using a premium first round pick on Troy Franklin. Because I think Troy Franklin is kind of a bust. Um, oh and so, man, we're oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, no, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly get into that. The, the individual specificity of the players that we're watching, but I'll just like, I threw out some names there. And, and what I mean is if, if there's a top five guy and they're able to, to get him or top seven, even get him at 28 or jump up and get him. If he's a top five talent on their board and the way that they're valuing things, I am 100% in, I, I don't care. Give me fifth and sixth round DTs. Just fill the fill the the field with some some chubby bodies, and you know see what we can do. Um, but the uh, you know the reality is, if they if they reached for a lesser talent, you know a second or third round talent at wide receiver in the first round, and then also miss out on a premier defensive tackle or safety help, um, that's what I think could set them back. No. It's a, you make a reasoned, well thought out point. And I think when we start to dig into some of the player profiles and, and top, um, top prospects at each position, you'll start to understand my thinking a little bit more, right? Like I know, for example, at the safety position, a lot of Bills fans are enamored with bringing in a guy like Cam Kitchens, for example, from uh, Miami. Um, Jaden Hicks is another kid from Washington State, right? There is a surprising amount of depth in the safety class, go, though. I think about Javon Bullard, while a little bit undersized, um, is kind of like this chess piece out of Georgia. And dude, the kid out of Utah, what's his face? Um, Cole Bishop. Like, I've just started watching a little bit of his college highlights and, and, and game film. He is everywhere. Elite athleticism, elite speed, 
Like he is absolutely a guy that could come in and fit into this scheme right away. And I think I know he's slotted at safety, but given his size and athleticism, could have some utility in dime and nickel looks as well as a straight up cornerback. So like as we dig into this stuff, these high area, these areas of defensive priority that you and I both agree, we've needed to turn over safety maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago to bring in athleticism to that position. I think traits that we are looking for to coach up and fit into the scheme are going to be available in ladder rounds. Maybe not at DT, but I think for sure at safety, um, even at edge, right? I think we're going to be able to find some of those guys. Wide receiver for as deep as this class is, when you look similar to what the Bills are doing on the defensive side, which is looking for a one tech, we are looking for an X. We are looking for someone who's 6'3", 6'4", has the right physicality at the point of catch, the right speed profile, and there's only a handful of guys in this draft, right? And yes, some of them may be in the second round or second round graded, but at pick 28, it wouldn't feel like such a reach to me to go for an Adonai Mitchell or go for, I think I think uh, Xavier Legatti is going to be, I think he's going to come late. I think he's like going to get graded like a third, even a fourth really? round maybe. Yeah. I, I, I just I think we'll he's going to test well. I Except think he's going to run very fast. You think, think he's going to be fast? That's going to be the thing. In the 40. And I think that that's going to drive him up, I think. I think that's the thing with Keon Coleman too, right? Mm-hmm. I think if Coleman runs fast, because everything else is there, but people have questions about his speed on film, I think if he runs a 4-4, I think he's out of, out, of, out of draft range for the Bills. I think he goes in the top 20, almost definitely, right? But But all that aside... The trait profile and the skill profile the Bills are looking at at wide receiver is limited. We don't need another 5'10", six-foot slot guy. We've got that covered, right? Um, and those are positions that are available in free agency on the cheap as well. When you look at the profile that they need at wide receiver, there's only a handful of guys available on this draft, and I really want to see the Bills just go all out and get one. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you there, and I think that the big thing for me is it, when we talk about setting the table and defensive line, wide receiver, and safety is kind of our top three needs. Um, safety is the is the one that like I'm not going to sweat it at all if the Bills don't get somebody in the first three or four rounds. Like if if Tyler Newbin from Minnesota or Cameron Kitchens from Miami are gone, and you're looking at maybe Javon Bullard, he's pretty good. Kalen Bullock is iffy, you know, like. Those guys are it's definitely second round talents. Um, if those top four safeties, you know, are off the board or, you know, go a little bit earlier, I'm cool with them taking. Like you mentioned, Cole Bishop is who's six. He's like six two, two hundred pounds. Like that's the kind of safety that the you know James Williams out of Miami, um, six five two fifteen. Like um, who was the guy who came out of um, Syracuse a couple years ago? Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, his brother was in the league. I can't think of his name. Oh, a... not Trill Williams. I know no. who you're talking about. I yeah, know who you're talking about. He's got a very interesting name. You, um, I'll look him up, but you, yeah. you, you called him Bust because of his family lineage. You yeah. brought in like the bloodline and the family I tree did. to call this kid a bust. I Let did. me look him up. <laughs> because, yeah, because he, yeah, his his brother was in the league already and was kind of like a highly, highly drafted, way underachiever. He has been a modest achiever, but still not certainly up to his draft position. I can't, again, sorry, I can't, I'm blanking on his name. But the thing about that is like huge, huge safeties, big size safeties tend to be a little bit too lanky 
it, to have that kind of quick titch, quick twitch reactions or take, you know, sometimes they struggle to take good angles or aren't able to kind of um, really break down and tackle in the box when they need to and, and kind of get beat by shiftier running backs and slots. And so, you know, that's that's the question there is like, is somebody that's a huge kind of long uh, safety going to be the guy? Because I know that that's one of um, that's one of Sean McDermott's preferences for all DB positions is that they kind of have some size. Um, and Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde aside, um, you know, I think that they could be looking for some of the, some of the size there and they can get that later in the draft. And also you just sort of trust with Bobby Babbage and with you know some of the talent they have in the coaching staff that they're going to be able to grab even if it's a rookie safety or you know uh, a veteran from free agency who's a little bit cheaper later in free agency they're going to be able to slap thump something together and have some you know some competent back-end play so that's the one position of the three that we're discussing that i'm just like yeah take take somebody um but i trust they're gonna get it working yeah the uh the DB you're thinking of is uh Ayafetu Melifanwu. Melifanwu, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Thank yeah. You. yeah. That, was, that was gonna bug me. There is, and again, I'm only just getting into my my draft prep. There is one DB, one DB, where if all of our top guys, I'm talking all of them at wide receiver were off the board at one. I would feel good about the Bills taking with the first round pick, and that right now is Cooper DeJean out of Iowa. He has speed, size, athleticism, and he's got position versatility. Like there is a, an open argument amongst a lot of uh, draft gurus about whether or not he is a safety or a cornerback. And there's a lot of folks who are like, listen, he's got the speed profile and athletic profile to stay with wide receiver ones. He can be a cornerback in the NFL. Um, I imagine a chess piece like that for McDermott in the secondary, and and I salivate a little bit. With his speed profile, dude, I mean, we could do some pretty crazy things. Like, we have talked about the need for that elite trait in the secondary for many, many years. We thought we might have had it with Elam, but you put Dijon back there, and if Elam figures stuff out, all of a sudden you have maybe two of the fastest DBs in the league on your squad. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely with, uh, with Dijon. If he's available, like that's there. And there are, there are a few, right? There are some prospects in this draft at some positions that we are not discussing, discussing, disgusting that if they, <laughs> if, if they're there when the bills are, are drafting, it's almost like, just got, you just got to turn that card in, right? Like you right. just have to take that, that player, um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely see some of those. Um, and I'm trying to think like, who's another player of a, of a different position that I'd be like, Oh, get, get that guy, get that guy. Uh, maybe like Latu, Latu, you know, top 15 edge, yep. um, even chop Robinson out of Penn state. Although Penn state and uh-huh. edges really scare me. We have not had good luck with that. No, I will, I will remind you. Right. Yes. But yeah, so there's, there's a few of those players, um, I'm not really, I know there's some like excellent offensive tackles and offensive linemen. I, I think you were talking to Steve before the pod about Jackson Powers Johnson. Um, Love this dude. But yeah. that that is a Mitch Morse dependent pick yes. if that ends up happening, right? Yeah. But and, yeah. yeah. And and that's the, that's the hard part about getting too much into prospects now before free agency because we have no idea what the Bills are going to do to A, get under the cap, and then B, 
how they're going to fill out some of the the floor raising positions via free agency. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just a few, there's a few pieces that it's like, okay, if that, if that guy's already got to take him just because that's too much value to have slid. But really, I think that the, I'll say this about the draft. After looking at kind of prospect rankings and kind of pre-draft, the early pre-draft stuff, the positions the Bills need and the way that the board looks like it's falling in most people's mocks in the first round, I'm booned with this, sir, because it feels it feels like the positions of need that the Bills will will like need to target there. Um, there should be a small handful, three, five, maybe mm-hmm. players of of talent at positions of need who the Bills could potentially pick from. I agree. And I wonder if picking 28, like here here's the thing, I, the the mental exercise I keep going through is if I if they're picking 28 and they trade down to 34, can they still get somebody? that they're really excited about and add some second or third round picks, um, second, third or fourth round picks, or are they just going to give up that stud wide receiver that they were targeting to the Kansas city chiefs at 32? Dude, you just, you, you know, you, I took that right out of your, you did. Your you took that yeah. right out of my head, but not, not give them the stud at 32. Right. I think about the Trent Mc, I think about the Trent McDuffie trade up. Oh, and gosh, yeah. Oh, the, some the the the, the, the Kansas Chiefs snipe them. Get them right. Get ahead the of the them. Chiefs tra- like so. Yeah. Every, everybody of note gets drafted, and two wideouts are left, and the Bills are seven picks away from picking. Right, and right. that means the Chiefs are going to be what eleven picks away or something sure. like that. Yeah. So, and the only two guys left on the board, Keon Coleman and yes. Brian Thomas Jr. out of LSU, okay. the Chiefs will not hesitate to leapfrog the Bills to get one of those two guys, right, in the first round. So it's not about necessarily Bean trading back. Again, it's like him thinking like Kansas City. If the guy I want is in this round and he is in striking distance, because to trade up from 28 to 20 to get the guy that you want in this draft, you're you're giving up maybe a future third-round pick, if that's the case, maybe a second. Worth it, right? Worth it if you can go get an X and then maybe your future wide receiver one after the Diggs contract expires too. So I want to see like with 10 picks in, in pocket, right? Depending on whether or not we get a comp pick for Edmonds, which I think we are. I want to see some aggression out of Bean this year. I really do. I sure. want to see some some Brent Veach-like aggression out of him to go address some of the needs on this crew. Because I do think at defensive tackle and I think at safety, we will find guys later on, I think for sure. Um, which means we're probably not going to argue that much about Byron Murphy. Like we talked about doing, you don't like him. A defensive I don't like tackle. Him. Yeah. I love him. So, <laughs> but it doesn't seem like it's going to be a factor for us. If, if our well, needs play out the way that they're going to, well, if our needs play out and also like he, a lot of people are pr- projecting him to go in the top 15. So it might, it's not, it might just be a moot point anyway, because the bills in this draft are not trading up for a defensive tackle. No. The, the way the needs are. Riot. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. They're not moving up. Um, yeah. On my note, because I watched. So just to tell everybody who is, you know, our, our listeners new and old, the way that Dan and I approached draft prep is that we watch. It's important. This this is important, too. You can go to YouTube and watch highlights. I like to watch full games. And so it's harder to find. But oftentimes somebody will do like a highlight, a player on a full full game so you get to see every snap because that's important you got to see the good and the bad correct um the reason that i don't like byron murphy is his highlights are ridiculous the dude can absolutely hunt and tackle 
anybody. He's so so much faster than 61308 should be. And that's valuable. He spends so much time on the ground every single game. Even his even his highlights, he's on the ground. And that is a real giant red flag for me for a defensive tackle prospect. Because trench play is so much about balance and it's so much about technique at the NFL level that this is a player who if I'm a above average guard in the league, I look at that and sure, the physicality and the, the finesse and the athleticism, all of that scares me with Byron Murphy. But I also recognize that he'll get way too over over the front of his feet. He will get way too off balance to the right or left when he's trying his different swims and rips. And you just put him on the ground. Um, that does not worry me. Somebody that worries me is Tavondre Sweat, also out of Texas, because he's like, He's literally built like a tree stump. He's like <laughs> 6'4", 362, and the th- he's got amazing balance. So where what he lacks in the athleticism that Byron Murphy has, he more than makes up for in kind of advanced hand fighting for somebody who's in college and balance. He's got incredible contact balance. He maintains his leverage. He regularly splits double teams just based on his size. He's the kind of anchor in the middle of a defense that if you put him next to an undersized Ed Oliver – there will not be an opportunity to double-team Ed Oliver. Not a single snap of the whole game. If the Bills have any talent whatsoever outside, um, Tavondre Sweat will demand the double-team of those five offensive linemen every play. I like Sweat, and I don't want to say anything disparaging about him because I, I, he, he is my number two DT right now as I'm going through, the, going through my, my progressions and evaluating these players. I'm a little concerned he didn't weigh in at the, super, at the uh, Senior Bowl. Yeah, his weight, um, his weight's a concern. He he is listed at 362. A lot of scouts that I've listened to on media takes and stuff like that say that he was probably pushing 380, 385 at the senior bowl, right? And we know the Bills and how much they value body type. The only exception being really Osiris Torrance and the McDermott era. But I think back to what they asked AJ Epineza to do to fit their scheme. And I, I worry especially putting a first-round pick on a guy like Sweat, what the Bills would need to do in order to get him scheme-ready and fit into the mold that they have for the one tech that they want. Because, dude, 385 is big. 385 is really big. And, of course, he's got a good center of gravity. At 385, (laughs) the Earth is literally holding him up at that point. He's got density (laughs) that that creates orbits. Exactly. Um, But the And that's, I mean, that's a really good point. The thing about Tavondre Sweat is if you draft him and then you ask him to change his body type, that's like going down to your junkyard and buying a flatbed one-ton like delivery truck and then deciding you're going to make it into a drag like a drag racing car. Like right. it's just not what you, you why would you do that? Like that's not this thing has an incredible value given its its like operational function to to make it into something different just it, it seems asinine. So if they draft him and then we're like, hey, we need you to get down to 315, like I'm I'm just not here for it. Cause like that's even 350 he'll, he'll from be tri- 385. He'd be tripping over his loose skin. Like yeah. that's not a, and that's like, not, I'm, you know, not making light of people who have amazing body transformations, but like it's, you know, he seemed to play really nice at 350, 360. Yeah. If he can kind of maintain that. And that's the, that's the thing too is like, certainly that's a question. I worry about that. But if he is able to kind of, ha- you know, have some athleticism, keep some some of that size, 
he will he will determine um you know what kind of running scheme a team can run at your defense like he helps set scheme yeah i also like to other than murphy and um sweat uh i really i like chris jenkins not as a first round pick but as a guy who we can get in the later round second or third round right again all pending combine measurements and how much we overrate people like running routes and making plays in shorts and t-shirts right but um just based on the little bit of film i've been able to watch on jenkins i i really like what he would add in the middle of that defensive line not doesn't have the quick first step that murphy does but i think Mm -hmm. would provide some real consistency next to oliver so yeah there's gonna be a dude there's gonna be a lot of ways that they can take (laughs) this but to me as i sit here today and my mind could change. It there are less as deep as the wide receiver classes, less specific guys of the profile the Bills need at wide receiver than there are at other positions of need in this draft, which is why I want to see wide receiver in the first round. So long as one of those top seven or eight guys with likely get a first round grade are going to be there. Sure. Yeah. Um, and trade you, up to get yeah. it. Bean, tra- trade yeah, up to get target it. Target your guy. You have 10 picks. Don't get, let get Veach beat you. Don't let him beat you. That's amazing. Um, I will say I will say one more thing about defensive tackle, like a specific defensive tackle in this draft, um, and that is uh, McKinley Jackson, Texas yeah. A&M. Probably oh, yeah. like a, oh, you like Oh, him. yeah. <laughs> oh, don't tell me you don't like him. I don't like him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's so funny that we like have such differing opinions on these. What is this? Oh my god, this is going to be so much fun when we do our actual player breakdowns, yeah. man. Yeah, I oh mean, my I will, I'll save, I'll save it for that. This this will be a tease for the future. But yeah, I don't, I don't like his game. Uh, I don't but like he, his game. I like his game if he's a fourth round pick. I, I was don't like say, his game any higher. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying he's a second or even a third yeah. rounder. Somebody but like, might draft him round. second or third round, and he'll be a bust at that. Well, they, they'd be stupid to do that. Yeah. But like, as a fourth rounder, he's a rotational at best backup. He, yeah, we need those guys. We don't have any of those yeah. guys yeah, right now. That's true. That's true. Pick <laughs> him in the fifth. And I'll, pick him in the fifth. I'll give him a chance. But any higher, I'm just like, nope. No, I like I like him as a fourth too. So okay. we actually agree. On yeah, that, we're pretty right? close on that. We I just think he's going to get overdrafted. I think somebody's going to pick him in the third or second. I mean, I don't I don't see him. I only see him on a couple of top one hundred boards. Like ESPN doesn't have him on top one hundred. The Athletic doesn't. I don't think Danny Kelly at the Ringer has him as a top hundred either. So I mean, CBS Sports has him at seventy six. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's a little surprising. No, yeah, I mean, I I'd, I'd put him in. I'd definitely put him in the lower lower half of the draft. Yeah. 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 Me too. That's okay. So that's that's good at least. So good. About, we agree on that. Okay. Is is Jerzon Newton out of Illinois? Is he one of those players that if he is like hanging out on the board at twenty five, you trade up for? No, because I think no. he pl- I think he pl- ends up playing lighter at what his listed yeah. weight is, which is two ninety five, and we we already have we already have our undersized three tech in at Oliver that's for right. the f- of the future. So yeah. Yep. No, no shade at him. His game is no. great. He's an amazing yep. pass rusher lacks a little bit to be has a little bit to be desired in the run stopping game which is really what the bills are drafting right and as a as a first round pick he would basically be oliver's backup and we don't need to worry about oliver's backup in the first round yeah we need a a one tech yeah absolutely no i agree i agree um yeah man i think we've honed in on it a little bit safety i feel like I'm good if the Bills go free agent signing there. Yeah. Like we said, like we said in the press pod, 
and then draft a dude in the latter rounds. I really like Cole Bishop. We're going to talk more about him. Um, so I'm good with free agent and then a rookie addition, right? So you don't need to put the rook in right away. It's such a high leverage position in the McDermott defense. And that well, rookie can be a fourth, third, fourth, fifth, right. you know. Exactly. Doesn't right. have to be a premium top three pick. Right. Wide receiver, DT, safety. If it goes yeah. in that order, I'm a happy man on draft day. So absolutely. So no, I, th I think we drilled down on it. So where we go from here, for those of you listening at home, is we are still going to post weekly every Saturday. What you're going to get for the next three weeks, tacked on to the end of the pod, is going to be our annual segment, Friends of the Pod, Not Friends of the Bills, where we're going to invite our three friends who are fans of other AFC East teams to come in and kind of set the free agency and draft table for their squads. So please stick around at the end of this episode because you're going to hear our friend Jared give what was a an emotional soliloquy about his New York, New Jersey Jets and what he feels like they need to do to re-enter contention in the AFC East. So you're going to get some of those pods over the next three weeks for us. We're going to take you right up to free agency, right through the draft, and then we'll take a brief hiatus between draft and, uh, and OTAs, all right? So plenty of Buffalo Bread coming to you every week, every Saturday morning. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe to the pod. Make sure you set us up for an automatic download. You can find us wherever you get your podcast: Google, Apple, Spotify. And as always, JJ, go Bills. Go Bills. Welcome back to Buffalo Brad, a Buffalo Bills fan podcast. You are joining us for one of our favorite annual segments that JJ and I like to do here in the offseason. Friends of the pod, but not friends of the Bills. This is where JJ and I get to sit down with some of our friends who are fans of other AFC East teams to discuss where they think their rival teams to the Bills are going to land here in the offseason. We've been doing it for a couple of years. We're always excited to dig into a little bit of the details on who we think are the up-and-comers in the division. And today we are starting with the New York, New Jersey Jets. And we have friend of the pod, not friend of the Bills, Jared on with us. Jared, how you doing today, man? I'm doing good. Let me also, I don't hate the Bills. Let me say, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not an enemy of the Bills. <laughs> I respect their fan base. I've loved my time in Buffalo. And honestly, we get to this time every year and I just consider completely abandoning the team I grew up watching. So <laughs> we're, you know. We know, just remember we, we those those feelings and those years are not too far removed from mine and JJ's memory. I will say this is like the third or fourth time you've been on the pod. You are like the I would say out of the three guests we have, you are the most Bills friendly. I would say like okay. the, there's a, like a mutual respect. <laughs> Brandon, who is our resident New England Patriots expert, openly hates the Bills, and it's hilarious. One of the reasons he yeah. says he likes me and JJ's pod so much is because we rag on the Bills more than anti-Bills podcasts sometimes. Growing up 20 minutes from Shea Stadium where the Mets played, cynicism and darkness informs my entire lens of professional sports fandom. Um, here, here's my thing. And, you know, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start ripping awesome. out of the gate here. Bring it. This past Jet season was heartbreaking and disappointing and sad in an exceptionally different type of way. Um, because never has a team both looked so close to real contendership and so far from real contendership. Forget about in the same season, 
in the same game, in the same half. <laughs> they were they were the most exciting, unwatchable team. I could I could make a compelling argument, maybe ever. The most exciting, unwatchable football team in modern forward pass football. I love the take. I assume you're talking a little bit about the the defensive the gap between the defensive efficacy of your team and then the offensive uh, inefficacy of your team. Because your defense, dude, was something to behold every week, right? And we'll get into some of those numbers in a bit. And I'm guessing those were the exciting pieces for you. And then when the offense took the field, that's where kind of like all the light drained away and it was just darkness. Yeah. And you know, I wish we had like a fun flashback effect because around a year ago this time you'd hear me. And at that time I sounded like a crazy person yelling in the streets. What would signing Aaron Rodgers actually accomplish? Does the offense get any better? Does the play calling get any better? You fired LaFleur. LaFleur turns out might've been the guy and you're still, you know, navigating what I would describe as the same old Jets problem, which is in short, you hire a stubborn, defensive-minded head coach, and you hand him a rookie quarterback. And it's basically like an episode of Chop, except every secret ingredient is like cold. <laughs> You're like, what do you what do you do? <laughs> and um, like, does you know, does Aaron Rodgers even solve this? And you know. So then what happens? Aaron Rodgers, after what I would describe as a very successful PR campaign on Hard Knocks, uh, plays less than one series as a Jet before rupturing his Achilles. Turns out that he's the same old insufferable, I have to be the smartest guy in the room, Aaron Rodgers. So even while he's not present, he's finding new and creative ways to like still decimate the morale of the team. From a distance. It's like a, he was like a bad video game character. Um, and then in the forefront, as this is happening, Zach Wilson, on four or five separate occasions this season, actually gave incredible glimpses of talent and potential. Totally like, agree. He's got, yeah. he's got a cannon of an arm, but he, he cannot make progressions fast enough yet. And if you combine that with the Jets' biggest limitation that stayed a limitation because of their wager on Rodgers, their offensive line, it was, a, it was a nightmare. And you can actually, and I'm sure we can talk, you know, a little bit further about this, but like the Jets, every time a team tried to pass rush them, every time an extra edge rusher was utilized against the Jets, the Jets couldn't generate offense. Despite having, I mean, we're, we're, I'm not even being delusional when I say this. Brees Hall, it turns out, is a top five running back in football. Yeah, he's great. He's an amazing weapon. Yeah. Yep. Garrett Wilson, it turns out, is a top 10 receiver in football. And with both of those things, they literally averaged, the stat that stands out to me, and you shared this with me, 1.15 points per possession. For context... I coach basketball professionally. If my basketball team averaged 1.15 points per profession, I would be on the chopping block. <laughs> You'd have a lot of 50% free throw shooters on your unit yes. if that was the case. So, I mean, I don't even know where to begin to unpack it, Dan, except for saying to you, I told you so. <laughs> I, I told you 
that this was going to happen if the Jets did this with Rodgers. This season gave me, by the way, zero evidence whatsoever that if Aaron Rodgers played, they would have even been three to four wins back. That's, you know, and that's the burning, one of the big, and I think the biggest burning question for you guys heading into next season is how much are you going to be able to hang your hat on an Aaron Rodgers comeback at the age of, what, 41 he'll be in season next year, coming back from an Achilles injury. Uh, so, Jared, you have touched on so many juicy topics. So Powered by rage. Pow- I jumped all over the place. <laughs> Powered by tell. rage. I love it. But you, you hit, you went, you were, you very succinctly, I think, gave us your state of mind as a Jets fan heading into the offseason. And now I think what I'd like to do for the listeners at home is let's guide them through some of the things that we feel like are going to be priorities for your unit to dig into here in this offseason. But before we can get into that, let's talk about the season that was by the numbers. We said this pre-pod, and I might have said it a couple of minutes ago, but it bears repeating the gap. The gap in performance between this defense, which was an all-around, literally by several metrics, efficiency, success rate, DVOA, was a top three unit in the league, was so anchored by what was one of the worst overall offenses, maybe in league history, no exaggeration. I agree with you that Zach Wilson showed some flashes. He's got big-time arm talent. His off-platform throwing skills are still what they were out of college. This is something that I think a good quarterback coach and offensive coordinator can develop. You know, but Trent Dilfer said it the best last year as, as Jets fans were going through another Zach Wilson uh, Zach Wilson roller coaster ride last season. He's like, Zach Wilson just doesn't want to do the boring stuff. And that's his biggest problem. He doesn't want to hit, take the easy yards. He doesn't want to take the seven-yard out route. He doesn't want to hit the eight-yard end cut. He doesn't want to throw the sticks. He wants to do something spectacular every time he has the ball in his hands. And as a result, he's still making a lot of mistakes that you would not expect a third or fourth year QB to be making, which is hanging on to the ball too long. His time to throw average behind that offensive line was one of the longest in the league. But because he's athletic, because he's got the arm talent, he thought he could improvise more than more than he was actually able to. You just you just nicked Zach Wilson, by the way. But the problem that the Jets, at least this iteration of the Jets, is never going to answer is, could you solve those things with a decent quarterbacks coach? So I want to walk you through three angles here. Angle one, their defense is as good as they are on paper, and I would argue somehow underrated. I think that they're the number one defense in the league if the offense can even remotely stay on the field. I agree. Like We're not talking about an offense... Oh, oh, they got it into the red zone, but they struggled to score and they just relied on field goals. We are talking about an offense that could not clear its own 50-yard line more than twice to three times. We are like a, a beacon of offensive futility in the NFL. So that, that's core what is just systemically, you had the two biggest problems that you could possibly have, which is Wilson holds on for the ball to scan his progression is too long. And they have a bat. And you put those things together and it's over. Thing two, in spite of those two problems, I could also make you a compelling argument that the Jets record is actually two or three games better than it should be. Um, oh, God, I totally agree. Are, oh, yeah. There are a lot. And a lot, I mean, a lot. In this modern brand of NFL football, there are a lot of stubborn coaches. And the Jets hung around some games that they had no business being a part of including week one against the Bills. And oh. 
I, I think was McDermott actually. We are 11 minutes in. I was wondering how long it'd take you to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. McDermott learned. And, and my goodness, did that second game look a lot different from the first game, just in terms of a defensive scheme. If you were a stubborn coach that played the Jets, for lack of a better way of putting it, you tried to do things your way, which I was, which, you know, coaching, right? You can't control it. But if you were willing to kind of dive the plan and see what the best practices were for defending the Jets, you killed them. You killed them. The Bills did that in game two. The Browns did that. Jets were trounced by any team that was willing to do the actual homework on defeating the Jets. That's point two. And now here's problem three. <laughs> um, it turns out that all that junk Sean Payton was talking about the Nathaniel Hackett cleanup job, we can move that. Um, at first we thought it was, wow, Sean, you know, Sean Payton is out of his mind. Forgot about this. You know, forgot about the fact that he was the bounty gate guy. We can actually now move that into a different file folder, which was maybe the wrong delivery of the message, but 100% the correct message. Very. And Zach Wilson, in my opinion, Zach Wilson's offensive funeral as a Jet quarterback will be, you know, the writing on the stone will be, was buried by Nathaniel Hackett's play call. It was atrocious all year. And then hilariously, these two teams played and the Jets could barely move the ball because the Broncos knew what he wanted to do. And from that crossroads in like week five or six, when those two teams played, the Jets became unwatchable on offense and the Broncos took like three to four gigantic steps forward as a franchise. Including one big one against my Bills, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've never felt... It's it. I would you're like stuck in a bad high school relationship with this team. You know exactly what needs to change, and you know that the current leaders do not desire changing. And I will tell you that the big difference for me, maybe the only difference for me from where we were talking last year about this team to this year, was Robert Sala's stock with me as a Jets fan is now gone. You were you um, were kind of down on him last year when we were doing this stuff too. You really questioned. If he was the guy, even with Rodgers coming in, that was going to be the one to like shepherd this team across the finish line. There are, trust me, I've learned this myself professionally, Dan. There are great assistant coaches out there who go through an experience that they're either, they realize maybe they're not ready to be a head coach or they realize maybe it's not for them. That has happened to me before. I was not ready to be a head coach the first time I tried it. I got better in the position, thankfully. It was like, but I wasn't ready. I didn't think about a million different things. His, he is now, each season, just made a stupid decision. Like either early in the season or mid-season that has completely scarred his team. Um, I don't think he's ever going to live down getting rid of LaFleur. Like that, it turns out that was his thing. LaFleur understood how to utilize Zach Wilson on the move and hide his weaknesses. And you don't have that anymore. You have a can you have, you know, Aaron Rodgers guy. I think there's compelling evidence that Aaron Rodgers likes Nathaniel Hackett because he lets Aaron Rodgers do whatever Aaron Rodgers oh, yeah. wants. Oh, uh, and indis undisputable. Yeah. And, you know, we're learning a lot. You know, we have catered 
We have catered our entire franchise. We have mortgaged the whole franchise to, I'm trying to choose my words wisely, but I don't know if I can do it, a sociopath quarterback who, you know, maybe is holding the team hostage. This is like, this is like growing up a fan of Kanye West's first three albums, knowing what he did for the last 15 years of his life and saying, I want Kanye West to produce my album. <laughs> this is the only way I can visualize this to the fans. Well, it was definitely, they they treated Rodgers, I feel like, like a silver bullet. Not just that he was going to fix their offensive issues with largely the offensive cast that they had the year before, including that putrid offensive line. But they also put the development on Wilson, of Wilson on him as well. And the coaching staff kind of washed their hands of that situation. They were like, well, if Zach can just watch Aaron for a season, it'll ultimately make him a better QB somehow by osmosis. Like osmosis, right. right. You know? Yeah. So, and then they didn't get the opportunity to do that. Nathaniel Hackett, I would agree with you. The track record says, kind of like an Adam Gase, he had it good with a, with a legendary QB at one point in his career and has kind of been trading off of that ever since. He is probably not the guy, right? It was not the guy last season in hindsight, but your team sold out so much to make Rodgers comfortable and happy and feel welcomed on that squad. They basically turned the keys over to the kingdom for a short-term investment in the hopes that it would accelerate the growth of what is a very, very young young offensive and defensive core for the most part. Um, yeah. And there's just been, if, if you look at Rogers recent track record in green Bay, where he had some really young teams, the Christian Watsons, the Romeo Dowds, he really, really struggled with kind of mentoring and shepherding young players as they developed within season. Look at the difference this year between what happened with the jets and a young roster and what happened just by subtracting Rodgers from that Green Bay team and adding in Jordan Love, they became did a play look, became a playoff did it look unit. To you, like anyone in Green Bay missed him? Not at all. Not at all. Now, I mean, at all. Not at all. Now, from a reputation standpoint, and JJ and I have talked about this. Rodgers seems to be well liked by his teammates for the most part. I actually think the Jets gave him some sort of in season award for being the most inspirational player yes. on the team. Right. So yes despite how we perceive Roger's actions, as you put it so well, I would say narcissistic and sociopathic, his teammates love playing for this dude, right? But it doesn't necessarily at this stage of Roger's career translate to results on the field. And I think when you look at the contrast between the Jets this year, granted Rodgers didn't play, but where Green Bay was at this year simply by removing him from the equation and injecting a young up-and-coming QB into that formula I, I mean, I think the the proof is in the pudding. That was largely the same team that Rodgers had last year that Love was able to uh, schlep into the playoffs with some really great QB play from Thanksgiving on. So it still bears the question. This might be a good good opportunity for us to segue here into some of your yeah. offseason thoughts, like what to expect with Rodgers? Because even if he is healthy at this stage of his career, is he capable of working with, tolerating, and showing enough patience with a young unit. Like, I love Garrett Wilson. I think Garrett Wilson, I agree with you. That dude has the chops to be a top 10 QB. 
He improvises a lot of his routes sometimes, though. And that's stuff that drives Rodgers absolutely up a wall, right? He wants precision. He wants to know where he's throwing the ball. You guys are about to remake, I would assume, your entire offensive line. And as JJ and I previewed um, in our free agency preview of the Bills last week, the pickings are slim in free agency um, when it comes to offensive linemen, particularly guards. So you guys are going to be dipping into the draft. You're going to be dipping into some unproven players. Jared, let me ask you, regardless of health, is Aaron Rodgers the linchpin that's going to take what's going to be an even younger offensive unit and be able to get them over the hump and into the playoffs? Let me, I'm, I'm trying to offer a concise and swear-free response, and here's where my brain is leading okay. me right we, now. We can put an explicit warning on the pod. It's fine. Just do your, oh, just it's do your thing. Oh, please, please. <laughs> Jared's for the kids. We're trying <laughs> nice. to we're trying to clean up our image here. <laughs> if he isn't, it is over for everyone affiliated with coaching and managing that team, and it is also over for him. So hopefully, his critical thinking skills have led him towards a hell of a steroid rep, so that he can figure out a way to basically be the bionic man on the football field, because. To, to steal a phrase from Mark Marin, podcasting guru, I don't think this is going to get any better. <laughs> this is, we are looking at a team, so you just, you just articulated one of the biggest problems the Jets have. They put themselves in a problem where they have to rebuild exclusively with the draft and with free agency, but they gave up a And... The free agency market is not very strong. No. I mean, and even if you want to add another receiver, can you believe how much money T. Higgins is going to command? Like, T. Higgins is the number one free agent wide receiver, and he only played half of last year. It's crazy. It's cra This wide so, receiver market is out of pocket, yeah. So, so the skill market is not good. The offensive line market is not good. And the Jets don't have a ton of draft stock. And even if they did, even if they had the room to do this, they don't have enough space to do it. So the Jets have put themselves in a situation where, like, no one, obviously no one thought Aaron Rodgers was going to rupture his Achilles on the first snap or the first drive, really. I'm being a little too facetious. Very close by saying first snap, but completely accurate. You're about three plays off, so you're pretty close. Right, right. Recency bias, I guess, <laughs> is the thing. But so it has to work. What are the choice do you have? These are the ingredients you have. You have handcuffed yourself to these ingredients. You've handcuffed yourself to Rodgers. By handcuffing yourself to Rodgers, you've handcuffed yourself to Hackett. Sala knows he's done. He knows that if the Jets aren't a playoff team this year, it's over for him. Um, Jets ownership? Woody never speaks about the team. And even Woody last week was like, oh yeah, we need to be like yeah. way better. Shots and this time we need a backup quarterback. Oh yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna ride Wilson and say he's not good enough, then go get a backup quarterback that is. By the way, that's like the most New York thing ever and all of that. I, I, I think, honestly, Woody has, you know, earned that. Your saving grace is that Jets management has drafted well the last two years. In your early rounds, you're not in a great spot. You know, and what's the trade market for any of the people you want to get rid of? You just spent your whole season publicly bashing Zach Wilson. No. And mishandling that situation completely. Yeah. So, so, so maybe, just maybe, 
you drove down his trade value by doing that. Um, so I think that for a million different reasons, the Jets are stuck. And uh, do I personally think Aaron Rodgers is the answer? Like, no. Mostly because I have eyes and ears. But, you know, even if he is, they get one year of it. And this is gone after this year. The way this team looks right now, even the pros are gone unless they can figure out a magical way for people to want to take a hometown discount in the New York metropolitan area, which is not happening. Yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. All right. So let's, that is the, and that is the defining question, I think, for your offseason. It's one that's not going to get answered until you see Rodgers take the field and OTAs potentially, um, training camp, and then ultimately preseason. So, right. so let's set the stage here, right? So I think we both agree, and you've alluded to it, the top two priorities for your Jets are wide receiver, bolstering the depth behind Garrett Wilson, and also just absolutely revamping that offensive line. When it comes to cap space, and just for all of you listening at home, pulling all of these stats from SpotTrack, um, a lot of people like over the cap or SpotTrack. I'm a SpotTrack guy because I, I love the tools that they have available to them to tinker around. I think it's a really nice interface. Uh, they are not a sponsor of this pod at all. I'm just a big fan of their uh, their platform. So according to SpotTrack right now, you guys are going into 2024 off-season mode with about $7.5 million in cap space, which SpotTrack thinks if you make the right moves, you can get to about 16, maybe 17 million with some ease. After that, you guys have to start making some moves, one of which is trading Zach Wilson, right? And right now, the trade market for Wilson as one anonymous uh, NFL personnel manager shared with, I think it was Sports Illustrator or The Athletic, when asked, what would you trade for Zach Wilson? They said he's not even worth a two-week stay at the Best Western. First off, I have stayed at several lovely Best Westerns in my life. And for and all, just while we're talking about it too, shout out to La Quinta yeah, as well. I know, right? Like, let's not, let's not drag Best Western into the muck with the Zach Wilson dialogue, all right? Let's right. keep the discourse where it needs to be, all right? Um, but it doesn't seem like there is a big trade market out there for her services, which push comes to shove, we'll see. If there's one thing that I am sure about in the NFL is that there are a lot of egos in coaching rooms and mm -hmm. position rooms. There's going to be a guy who's like, give him a seventh round pick because I can fix this kid, right? Maybe it's Atlanta. Maybe it's Carolina hedging against the Bryce Young thing, which would be absolutely crazy if they did that, right? Maybe it's Dallas, because why not? We're collecting former former number one draft picks. They've got Trey Lance. They're going to extend Dak. Why not bring Zach Wilson into the fold? Someone is very likely going to take a flyer on this kid. Do I think... 100%. Do I, th 100%. Yeah, do I think he's going to net a third or fourth round pick? No way. But a sixth or seventh rounder, maybe, right? Especially as we get to the end of the draft, maybe someone takes a flyer. So you guys trade him. That gives you another about 5.4 million in cap space. From there, you've got some tougher choices to make. You can release Lake and Tomlinson, which I think is a no-brainer, but then you're really starting from scratch on your offensive line. But he, releasing him saves you about 8 mil. You could also release your entire tight end room if you want to, wanted to to save about another $9 million there. And then you got a couple of extensions that you can do with Mosley and Reed, and then you could convert um, Williams' base salary here to um, convert it to largely a cash signing bonus, right? And based on that, 
according to SpotTrack, again, you'll get somewhere between 16 and maybe $25 million in cap space. But if you pull on all those levers, you're also decimating a lot of units on your squad that are already decimated. Pass, Killing your future. Yeah, exactly. Right. Pass catchers and offensive line. So let's work Let's work backwards, and I'm going to give you kind of like what I think needs to be solved in what order. Do it. Um, I think the very first thing you do is you sign Reed. Reed has to be signed. Um, th- Like, maybe some of the most deceptive stat lines in football, because like literally every tackle he got was a sack. So, um, you have to, you have to resign him. Um, I feel like Mosley is sort of becoming the, like, Bart Scott slash David Harris archetype of this team, like early thirties, just jacked linebacker that the team rallies around. Yep. Um, to me, I think that you have to start with the two of them. Um, I think that you spend most of your time as a management team pre-draft trying to figure out what wide receivers you can sign. And I think you want that done before the draft. Mm -hmm. Um, Reason being, again, maybe the Jets' biggest strength right now has been their drafting. So I think your game plan going into it is offensive linemen, we can draft a hoss and we can teach them. We can't necessarily get the receiver thing right with the picks we have in the draft. Like, would I love to see Marvin Harrison Jr. fall to 10? Yeah, I would give anything in the world for that. It's not happening. So, you know, you're not going to trade to get better than where you are right now. You don't have the, really, the utilities to do that. So you just start eyeballing free agent wide receivers. The free agent wide receivers I would target, to me, they actually fall out of the top 10. And I think you sort of, you know where you are, you know where you need to get better. Where the Jets could really get better is the slot. And I think that you look down into like the key slot receiver for the Lions, Josh Reynolds, mm-hmm. is available. The key slot receiver for the Vikings, coincidentally in the same division, KJ Osborne is available. Mm-hmm. Noah Brown is available from the Texans. And I think you're like, okay, maybe we just take a flyer on these guys, short-term contract, and say, hey, you think you're worth more? Cool, play for it. We'll pay you like a mid-level exception right now, NBA style. Play for it, and we'll see what happens. And I think there are some guys that would jump at the opportunity to, you know, make a little bit more money, but jump up the depth chart to potentially make more on the next contract. Mm, that's I think thought. that's the wide receivers the Jets have to be targeting right now. Whatever you do not get in free agency with wide receivers, you do, you do something at the end of the draft. But I'm not kidding when I say this. Maybe your first four rounds, especially with where you're locked in pick-wise, are offensive linemen. Fascinating. I think I think you have to. Have to, have to, have to rebuild your offensive line that way. By the way, Jets have done this before. Debrickashoff Ferguson's like rookie year. Like, so I'm I'm trying to work with things that this franchise has done. You know, they had they had a veteran in Mangold and they built a terrifying line around right. him. And it was death by running. Um, if you've learned one thing about Brees Hall this past season, it's that you could check down and run with him. He can he can touch the ball 30 times a game and still have energy. So, you know, you try to build it inside out. I, I think that's the only way you do this. And, you know, uh, could a member of the Jets front office say, you know, oh, well, we're really handcuffed here and there's not much we can do. 
So we got to buy low and we got to draft well. You know, could they use that as an excuse? Like, yeah, but you did it to yourself. So fix it. <laughs> this is your shot at making it right. And this is probably the only shot you have. Is there any thought in re-signing Connor McGovern? So he's one of your, I would say, key unrestricted free agents this offseason. Yes. You've got a lot on the defensive line you've got to address too. But on the offensive line, you've got Mackay Becton, which I think now is a perfect time for you to part ways. Um, and then you've got Connor McGovern. So is your strategy re-sign Connor McGovern and then hope hope Elijah Vera Tucker comes back um, healthy next season and then build around those two guys? It depends. And I, I honestly don't know the validity of this answer only because I'm not in the room. But to me, for the money that he's going to command, he better be the best leader ever. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and I, and I think that if, if yes, then yes. Mm -hmm. And if no, then no. Um, because again, <laughs> there's so many big problems. I mean, you just don't have a recipe for success in general if your offensive line is not solid. Um, the middle of the offensive line is important, but the edges of the New York Jets offensive line is are so bad. Your tackle play was really bad this year. I mean, for context, you guys were 30th in pass block win rate, 29th in run block win rate, which makes Hall's season all the more remarkable given how little chance he had at the line of scrimmage. Yeah, Brees Hall is basically like a mythological figure yeah. at running back. So, like, I mean, it's the most jacked up I've been about the Jets running game probably since Curtis Martin. <laughs> um, but, it, I mean, it, it's such a glaring problem that... Well, why don't we look at it this way, Dan? They're not going to go from worst in the league to best. They're going to go in one season. They will be capable of going from worst in the league to average. That is what the cap kind of dictates right now, and that's what their picks kind of dictate right now. The Jets need to decide what's better for us, average by the mean mm -hmm. or average by the media. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, it's if, if the Jets are confident that they can scheme and plug some holes by being average by the median, then I think you re-sign some key guys. Mm -hmm. It's hard, though. Like, their play, their play calling is so pedestrian and not creative. And, you know, most teams know whether or not they're going to run or pass before they do it. And they only fake punt when the game is over. So, <laughs> so it, it's hard to know what they're going to do. And it's easier to just kind of predict that it's going to continue to be a gigantic problem. I know. I know. But I, I feel like re-signing a guy like McGovern... Um... Even bringing a guy back, like, we'll talk about the de defensive side in a minute. Someone like Bryce Huff, who is a real, I mean, real budding star for you guys this year. I just feel like you need a, you need yeah. some veteran leadership in the room. Mosley, extending Mosley makes sense there too. You just need some veteran leadership in the room that isn't only Aaron Rodgers, yes. if you guys are going to get through the season. Let me add also, I misspoke before and I want to, I want to fix this for any you know, two or three Jets fans that are particularly listening right now, Huff is the one I want re-signed. Right. He's the one that only gets tackles that are sacks. I said, Reed, that was an accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think everything everything builds on Huff and Mosley right now. That's kind of where where I am. Um, and leadership is important, and we learned that. And we're about to see how much leadership Aaron Rodgers actually brings. Because God knows that when he's not playing, it's not a lot. <laughs> 
oh god that that ESPN article by I think it was Diana Rossini nothing in there was like revelatory about how things were operated basically the Jets sold out to make an empire in New York unto Aaron Rodgers he got to bring in his favorite play caller he got to bring in his favorite um aging wide receiver weapons and all this other kind of stuff they basically let him play head coach and GM all at the same time Sala was very deferential to Rodgers, if you believe that article as well, and really thinks his future as a head coach in New York is tied to this guy. And Rodgers loves that level of control, I think, over the staff and over the organization. So it's, oh my God, dude, it is, you guys are in, if you guys win next season, like winning is the best deodorant, right? Like some of these young pieces that you draft mm -hmm. come together and things like that. And if you guys are winning, None of this is going to matter. But if you guys lose and you start to lose badly again with Rodgers, who is supposed to be the savior coming back into the fold, I, dude, that New York media market is going to have a hate is going to have a field day. I feel like it'll be between you guys and the Dallas Cowboys for how many headlines y'all are getting on ESPN. I think it's just going to be it could be insufferable for you guys if next year doesn't go well. Um so I think we both agree on the offensive side. Fix the wide receiver room, add some depth. I like the yeah. idea of bringing out a veteran slot. And then because this draft is so deep this year with wide receivers, maybe using that that top 10 pick on one of the elite X guys that you got here in the draft. But Speed guys, right? Yeah. Speed kills. Yeah, speed, speed. But, you know, JJ and I talk about this all the time, too. Like Tyquan Thornton, I think he's on uh, New England, right? Speed guy. Can't run around. Horrible body positioning does not win at the point of catch, right? You need someone who's going to do all win in all four phases. Great route running and release. Someone who is yes fast because speed does matter, but someone who can also win at the point of catch with their hands and ball skills, but also their body positioning. And there's so many guys in the draft that'll be attainable for you all there. It's going to be so interesting to see because most mocks right now have you guys going offensive line for the reason we talked about that the free agent market is just not budding with a lot of plug and play guys right now on the offensive line. Um, right. So it's more, more likely than not you guys end up going offensive tackle, I would think with your number 10 pick, but then you've got a third round pick at 72, two fourth round picks at 111 and 113. And then you're getting into the six, six, one single six round pick and two seventh round picks as well. So you guys don't have a second round because of the trade for Rogers this past year. So, the more I think about it, I know, man, the more I think about it, that top 10 pick, very likely going to an offensive lineman, someone like Joe Alt from Notre Dame or someone yep. of that ilk, right? How would you feel about that if you guys deferred the wide receiver conversation to the third round in the draft this year? I, I'm completely fine with it, especially, I mean, the NFL is riding a train where like the best slot receivers, receivers are basically coming out of like round six and below. So Nico Collins, Tank Dell, yes. right? There you go. Yep. So like, I mean, I, I just, there, I have so many, I can't answer any question about the Jets directly because of the horrible situation they put them in. So I'm going to, this is actually, a, this is the best way I can both answer your question and maybe articular, like articulately summarize my entire appearance on this podcast. <laughs> nice. Which is, and, and here we go. We're going to really try for it here. The Jets sold themselves to have a good 2023. 
and it went wrong. And now they are living with the consequences of what they sold for it. They are the 2008-2009 Boston Celtics minus the NBA championship. I like the basketball they, comps you're bringing to the table. I, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it. That's this. That's where I swim. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the pool I swim in the most. But they are like any other team, any other team that did what the Jets did to have the season they just had has way more to show for it than the Jets did. So we are kind of looking at one of two trajectories here. I think to your point, it's a foregone conclusion that the draft is going to be heavy online and it needs to be. Worry about receivers when you can get them, either free agency or the end of the draft. If it is not remotely better, and we're going to know, by the way, we're going to know by like week two. (laughs) It will be a lot easier than this past season for me and my emotions especially. They're either going to the AFC championship and everyone gets to live another day. Or it is one of the hardest franchise resets that the NFL has seen in decades. And it's coming quickly. It's like watching, it's a deer and the headlights are strong, but the car is like a hundred yards away and it's just slow motion for the next eight months. That's what this is. Yeah. Schedules don't come out till May, but I feel like if you guys start one and three, two and four, you know, one and six, something like that. I feel like Salah's probably gone midseason and you guys are going to start to hit the reset button right away. Um, Jared, man, those were great thoughts. So I want to summarize here where you're at. Of the current UF uh, unrestricted free agents that you guys have, you're prioritizing Bryce Huff, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, extending Mosley, yes. re-signing McGovern, give you some of that veteran core back into the clubhouse. And then just draft your faces off after that, right? Draft and pray. Draft and pray. <laughs> That's what the draft usually is. So excellent, man. Excellent. You want to offer any any final right. thoughts here on your team before we wrap up? Yeah. Jets fans, I have I have unfairly ridden you for a very long time. It was hard for me. I'm much like kind of I'm a self-loathing Jew from Long Island, New York. I'm a self-loathing Jets fan. I think that our candor towards others is not good most of the time. I think that um, your negativity and pessimism to start most seasons is, for the most part, unwarranted. Not last year. Everything, everything that anyone in the world has heard a Jets fan say about last year's team is true. And I just want to say, it it took me a long time to get there. I get it. I'm I'm going to elect to live my life void of that level of cynicism because I want my marriage to flourish. But for that reason and that reason alone, I'm not going to join you in the depths. But I just want you to know that I respect it. You deserve, you have earned whatever it is you have to say. Jets fan, you you deserve it. I am here with you. And if you want a reprieve from just perpetual disappointment, just remember there are other teams out there. You can you can watch them. You can get your fix. It's it's really therapeutic. You should try it. <laughs> it's therapeutic to watch another team that is like competent at football. Oh my god, uh, love it, Jared. Wonderful summary right. and nice shout out for uh, for your Jets fans. Before we uh, before we sign off here, 
You want to plug any of your socials, anything like that for the uh, the listeners at home? Sure. Uh, I, I'm at Jared, the coach on every social media platform. Uh, it's pretty insufferable right now because I'm promoting a passion project, uh, which is a book about the recruiting process. I'm really excited about it. But yeah, uh, follow me at Jared, the coach. Uh, if you're a therapist, you might. I feel like that's going to be the targeting I'm, I'm generated after the last 40 minutes. Just going to be people reaching out to me. Like, Are you OK? Dude. Uh, but yeah, please reach out anytime at Jared the Coach. Appreciate you having me on. Excellent, Jared. Thank you very much for being with us today. And for all of you listening at home, thank you for listening as well. Like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast Google, Apple, Spotify. And as always, go Bulls. <laughs>